I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. What you need to do is train your people. I, I have a course that I launched called Invest in Your Leaders, and one of the 12 modules of my course is the interviewing models to actually know how to do proper interviews, proper group interviews, proper reference check, how to leverage torque. And if you bring that in and hiring not just a COO, but anybody in your company, you have a much higher predictability for success. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a wildly successful business and still maintain a fulfilling personal life? In this episode, our conversation begins with my entrepreneurial journey, from selling coat hangers as a child to becoming the COO of 100 Got Junk, a company that revolutionized the junk removal industry. Then our discussion revolves around the concept of the second in command and its vital role in a company's success. We emphasize the significance of nurturing a healthy relationship between the CEO and their second in command. I share insights into how he and his CEO at 100 Got Junk maintained this dynamic, using techniques like date nights to keep the communication lines open. We delved into the importance of vision in business and life. We also talk about the power of a vivid vision, a detailed description of what your business or personal life should look like three years from now. Having a vivid vision serves as a compass, guiding decision-making, and helping you say no to opportunities that don't align with your goals. Cameron Harold, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. This is going to be so much fun. Thanks, Brandon. Nice to see you. Appreciate having me. Yeah, of course. I thought a, a fun place to start would be to give people a glimpse of young Cameron. Young, when I say young, I'm talking young, young. So I listened to uh, the talk that you gave for Mind Valley, and you kind of shared some of your earlier entrepreneurial adventures, which I saw started as early as grade five and grade seven. I think it'd be kind of fun for, or even younger, <laughs> he's pointing down. Share us a little bit about uh, what was going on in your life and your relationship with the school system, maybe. <laughs> okay, well, let, I'll go before that. So I was, okay. my very first entrepreneurial venture that I remember, and I had about 15 different entrepreneurial ventures by the time I was 18. My very first one that I remember, I was seven years old. My mom walked into my bedroom and I had those the old days with the, the phone with a long extension cord on the phone. It was in my bedroom and, and I was lying on the floor with the yellow pages open up in front of me and I was phoning all the dry cleaners in the city of Winnipeg, Canada, negotiating with them on how much they would pay me for coat hangers. Now, back in the early 70s, you get a recycling fee for coat hangers. If you brought them to the dry cleaner, they'd give you a couple of pennies per coat hanger. And so I was I was negotiating and I wanted three cents a coat hanger and this dry cleaner only wanted to give me two cents. And then finally I went, how about two and a half cents? And he said, kid, how old are you? And I said, I'm seven. How about two and a half cents? And he goes, fine, two and a half cents. And I said, good, we'll see you this afternoon. And I hung up the phone. And I was all excited. And then I saw my mom and I started to cry. And she said, what's wrong? And I opened up my closet and I had hundreds of coat hangers in my closet. I'd been going door to door in the neighborhood for about a week, collecting coat hangers from all the neighbors, telling my mom I was playing with my friends, but I was so focused on growing my first little business. And, and, those, and, and I learned negotiations. I learned hustle. I learned persistence. I learned buy low, sell high, like from my very first little venture at seven. When I was in grade six, the story you're thinking of, my dad was was in meeting with the principal and I was sitting outside the principal's office and um, I heard my dad and, and the principal started arguing with each other. And I heard my dad say, 
There's nothing wrong with my kids. There's a problem with the fucking school and the medical system. And he opened the door. He grabbed me by the hand. And he said, let's go. We're leaving. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just like me. You're an entrepreneur. And the school was telling my dad that I couldn't sit still. I couldn't pay attention. I was distracting. I was um, too talkative. I was not paying attention in class. I wasn't trying hard enough. Meanwhile, I just found school really freaking boring. And I was probably trying to run three little businesses. And I was, you know, playing sports and couldn't sit still. And everybody else learned slower than I did. So yeah, it was, they were accurate, but it wasn't that I was stupid. It's just that I thought they were stupid. And um, so my dad kind of taught me that no medication, but he showed me how to leverage my superpowers. How do you leverage ADD and how do you leverage bipolar and how do you actually use those to your advantage to be, you know, authentically you. I had on uh, Mike Canings a few weeks ago, and he talks about being an alien wrapped in human skin. So you must have been that little alien seventh. Where, where did you get the idea for coat hangers? Was that was that your parents' entrepreneurial drive, or you just wanted to innovate, or what was that? <laughs> well, that was around when my dad was teaching us to spot ideas. So he, we never got allowances as kids. I did a, a talk that's on the been on the main TED website. It's called "Let's Raise Kids to Be Entrepreneurs." It's still on the main TED website today, but it used to be on the homepage. And my dad would teach us to spot an opportunity and negotiate with him. And that's how we could make money. He wasn't going to give us money as an allowance because that was like a paycheck, right? Getting the same amount of money every week. So my, I was in a dry cleaner with my mom and I saw my mom getting money for something and I asked her and she told me. And so I was like, I could do that too. I was learning to spot opportunity, right? That's brilliant. Well, let's fast forward a, a chunk of years and kind of see the the magnified version of those skill sets. I I feel a little bit like the Marvel combining superheroes because we had on on Brian Scudamore a few weeks ago, and that was an in, incredible episode. And so this is where uh, Brian's episode and Cameron's episode will will overlap as like the the whatever the Marvel Avengers <laughs> equivalent of my podcast is. But talk a little bit about your journey at one eight hundred Got Junk. Uh, I think it would kind of set the foundation for some of the other stuff that you've built out in your career. Sure. And I'm going to go even backwards. Just one more quick second on that. When I was 20 years old, I had 12 full-time employees. So I was, I was running my own real business with 12 employees when I was in second year university. And I got in, involved in an organization called College Pro Painters, which went on to become the world's largest residential house painting company. And I became ended up on the very senior leadership team there, yada, yada, yada. Years later, Brian and I were both in a mastermind group called the Entrepreneurs Organization. And we were in the EO organization for four and a half years. We ended up in a small forum group of eight or nine guys who met every single month for four and a half years. So I watched Brian growing his business. He watched me growing two EO qualifying companies that I had. One was a collision repair chain. One was a private currency. So he got to watch me building companies. I got to watch him building companies. He was my best man at my wedding. And then three months later, I joined him to work for him at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I walked in as employee number 14. He was doing $2 million in revenue that year. He had 12 franchises sold, but he really had no idea how to scale this thing out. And I'd already built two franchise companies, so I got to help my best friend do it. So he had a bit of an unfair advantage in bringing me in, and we're still friends to this day. That's beautiful and would highly recommend anyone go check out the 1-800-GOT-JUNK episode with Brian. That was episode 108. And uh, man, what what an incredible journey you guys went on all those years of building 1-800-GOT-JUNK. That was that was really, really cool. We did from 2 million to 106 million in six and a half years. We went from 14 employees to 3,100 employees and we ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. So it was a, a fun journey for sure. Yeah. I don't know if this comes during your time at 1-800-GOT-JUNK or where this falls in the timeline, but I'd love to kind of, this is going to seem like a non sequitur, but I'm just going to toss it in there. Uh, you get a metallic taste in your mouth. <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about what that happened and, and where that was in your journey. That was prior to 1-800-GOT-JUNK. It was about three months prior. Um, I'd been building up a private currency company. We got acquired by a US public company when we were public. The NASDAQ had just started its epic crash by 78%. So that was when our, our company stock went from $26 down to $2.15 over six months. So our $64 million valuation was worth $3 million when we got out. Uh, my wife was pregnant. We just, she just, we'd just gotten married. We were buying our first house. I was moving from Seattle to Canada. I had all this stuff happening, and I thought everything was fine. I went in to get a medical for my insurance to buy the house, and the doctor said, what's going on? I'm like, not much. Just got this, I got this weird metallic taste at the back of my neck, but I'm just here for routine physical. And when he, he walked me through, or I walked him through everything that was happening, 
he had me do a, a test. And when you fill out all these questions, if you get 90 points on the test, you have a 50% chance of a heart attack. If you have 150 points, you have a 95% chance of a heart attack. I had 435 points. So I was clinically redlining and it was a chemical secretion being caused by stress that I was almost tasting at the back of my neck. Yeah, that was a, a real learned. I was written up in the Wall Street Journal that year as one of four supernovas whose careers went very fast and flamed out with stress. And it was three months later that I joined Brian, started running, started trying to get my shit together, you know, took my weight down from 222 pounds down to 180 today. But yeah, tried to do some of the right stuff to turn that around. But that was just before 1-800-GOT-JUNK. That's crazy. And I mean, obviously a huge wake up call from your body to say something was wrong. And so it's really cool to see that you've kind of built a journey and a lifestyle around those lessons and making sure that that doesn't happen again. What Before we hit record, we were talking a little bit about um, your your adventures. I want to give maybe people a little bit of a glimpse of what you're up to these days. And then we'll dive into your book, which would highly recommend, super excited to dive into it. The second in command, unleash the power of your COO. But before before we get there, um, I, I know you have been traveling the world for the past few years with your wife, which is super, super cool. Um, I'm sure there's so many different stories you could tell that would kind of give a little bit of a, a glimpse into the life of your nomadicness. But one thing that I, I heard you share on, uh, I think it was the episode with uh, Hal Elrod, uh, uh, you talked about you were you had an opportunity to teach monks how to fly paper airplanes. <laughs> We'd love to love for you to share a little bit about that and what that experience was. So my wife and I have decided that we want, kind of want to live our bucket list life. And so she's curating it, organizing it, planning everything. But we've both committed all of these ideas of what we want to try to do before we die to these long lists of things. And one of the things that was on her list was to go to Bhutan, this amazing place near Nepal and on the border in China. And she wanted to go to Nepal. And then I also want to spend a lot of time in these mastermind communities around other entrepreneurs who are doing cool shit to be able to be inspired and, and keep building our, our network. And, and there ended up being this group called Wayfinders that was running a trip of entrepreneurs to Bhutan to go hiking. hiking. So it became kind of a hell yes, let's do it. And off we went to Bhutan. And while we were there, I think on about the fourth or fifth night we were there, we were sleeping in a monastery. We're staying with these monks anywhere from about seven years old to about 30 years old. And on the, the final night, we went out and we asked if we could do a bonfire with the monks. And the head monk said, yes, they're allowed to do one bonfire a year. We'll make an exception and do one with you. And, and then my wife and one of the other women decided at one point during the bonfire, it'd be cool if we could start dancing. So they started playing music and hooked up a Bluetooth speaker. And the head monk kind of looked and was like, okay. And everybody, monks were all dancing. And he said, you know, they're not allowed to dance. Like, we don't play music here. It's not really a done thing. And But it seemed like such an okay thing that he let it happen. And for about an hour, we we're dancing at this bonfire and the full moon coming in. And then we went back into the, the eating area of the monastery after to have like hot chocolate and some snacks. And one of the, <laughs> the other entrepreneurs we were there decided to teach the, these little monks how to make paper airplanes. And 20 minutes later, there's paper airplanes being shot all <laughs> over the place. And and the head monk is just going like, what is going on? Like, this is not... This <laughs> people is not... aren't coming back. <laughs> yeah, we were only, supposedly only the second group to ever stay at this monastery. And, you know, we're up at about 12,000 feet at that point. And anyway, so yeah, that was a cool experience for sure. That's amazing. So you've built this life around fully traveling now. So you're 100% nomadic now. Is that is that correct? You're traveling full time with your wife? Sold the homes in, in Arizona, got rid of the home in Canada, sold our cars, sold all of our furniture. I have three pair of pants and a pair of joggers. I got three pair of shoes. She sold all of her stuff and we're fully nomadic. We were 23 countries last year and more coming this year. That's beautiful. I am also a travel addict. I'm looking forward to going back to Florence and Barcelona this year with my wife. We just we just booked those. So I'm sure you have plenty, plenty more travel stories up your sleeve. But um, I don't want to rob anyone. I, I, I'm sure I've teased in the in the intro. Uh, you have a new book out, The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. Uh, read it and super excited to to dive into some of the concepts. And if you're watching, say camera or if you're listening, camera just show the the cover. But so the, the just to kind of give a the, my uh, my high level overview of the book, it's like you know it's broken up into three chunks. You got like kind of like the user's guide 
for COOs, then how to hire, and then how to how to work with the COO. And so I thought a, a great place to start was actually a huge insight that I got that from your book. This is reading from your book. Many of the leadership roles in a business are a little cookie cutter. Most CMOs could be a CMO for most companies. Most CFOs could too. Not the COO. No two COOs on the planet could have the same job. So I would love to start this part of the conversation by asking a really dumb question that I think is actually a really valuable question. But what is a COO, Cameron? If you could just share from your own mouth what that is. <laughs> so yeah, and it's why I called the book the second in command as well. So the COO is one of the titles that a second in command might have. It could be a president, it could be a VP of operations, a project manager, a director of operations, general manager. The COO would tend to be the most senior of all of the roles that the second in command could play to the entrepreneur or CEO. What I like to try to figure out or to help people figure out is that the more, the bigger the title you want to give them, the more roles and responsibilities they should have, the more autonomy they should have, the higher level of strategy they should bring into the company, and the higher level of pay they should be receiving. So if you're paying your second in command 120000 a year, they're not a COO. Don't give them a COO title because they're going to go out there and start researching at some point what COOs get paid, and they're going to come back in and say they should be getting paid three fifty, and all of a sudden the conflict starts to happen, right? So put the proper titles in place. But the C, the second in command is the person, it's kind of the yin to the yang of the entrepreneur, right? It's the brakes to the entrepreneur's gas or it's the leash to the dragon or it's the, as Thomas Edison said, vision without execution is hallucination. So it's really the person who can help with the execution to the vision that the entrepreneur comes to the table with. In the book, you share the different types of COOs. And obviously we won't have time to go through all of them, but just like in your work and the COOs that you work with, I think it might be helpful to give people kind of like a high level overview of the different functions they have, the different ways that you've seen the yin to the yang play out in different relationships. Would you mind maybe sharing a little bit of some of the ways you found that to manifest? Sure. And, and it's interesting that I was actually texting earlier today with the current COO from 1-800-GOT-JUNK. His name is Eric Church. And I've known Eric for 35 years. We started a fraternity together in Ottawa, Canada, 35 years ago. I was president year one. He was president year two. And now here he is, the COO, you know, years later after me being there. He's been there for 10 years. He would have been a horrible COO for the first six years. And I would have been a horrible COO in the time period he's been there because we were the, the company was at a different trajectory. It was a different size. My roles in the early days were to come in and be very much kind of the mentor to show the team what had to happen because I'd done it before. Eric was much more there to be the partner to Brian, to be the kind of collaborator, to be the, you know, helping to align the team and to stay growth and stay strategic. But he's very inward facing. I was a very outward facing COO. So what's different about the COO role over any other role in the company is you have to be really good at the stuff that the entrepreneur sucks at. You have to be really strong at the areas that they they don't love, and you have to not want to get involved in the areas of business that there are their unique ability. So, and and many of my COO Alliance members finance and IT report to them. It didn't report to me. We probably have thirty percent of our members that IT and finance do not report to. We have others where sales and marketing report to them, and then we have other members of the CEO Alliance that sales and marketing do not report to them. So the key is for the entrepreneur to understand what parts of the business do I love? What parts of the business am I really good at? And how do I find somebody who's really good at and loves doing the stuff that I don't? And that's the, the first starting point of the yin and yang. The second part is, and Brian and I had a bit of an unfair advantage here, we already really knew each other, right? We were in a forum together in the entrepreneur's organization. So he knew me, he trusted me. I knew him, I trusted him. We liked each other. He was my best man at my wedding before I started to work for him. So if you can figure out all of those things about somebody before you hire them, it's by having really strong interview processes and reference check processes, really strong screening processes so that you know enough about them so that you can kind of hand them the keys to your business. That's key in finding the right yin and yang partner as well. Yeah, I love that. Let's let's zoom in a little bit on that first part of what you were talking about. Basically, you want to find somebody that is really good at the stuff that you suck at and compliments your unique abilities. And you're kind of going back and forth um, in that perfect harmony there. So I know one of the things that you talk about in the book that I, that I love this exercise, but I would love for you to share a little bit about the activity inventory, maybe some of the, the ways that we could begin to implement and find those, those areas where we're weak and then find someone to compliment it. Yeah, so I learned the concept from Dan Sullivan, who built Strategic Coach. And the idea is pretend that someone follows you around with a video camera for an entire month. 
And over the course of that entire month, they kind of film everything you do from seven in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And then you rewind and you rewatch the whole film or the whole video, and you write down everything that you see yourself doing over the course of the month. So what I like to do is open up a spreadsheet. And in column A, I put down every single task that I do over the course of the month. And I might end up with 80 tasks in column A. And then in column B, I categorize them in one of four ways, either I for incompetent, meaning you suck at it, C for competent, meaning you're okay at it, E for excellent, meaning you're really, really good at it, and then U for unique ability, meaning you're really good at it, you love doing it, you get energized doing it. That's the kind of key. In column C, and I kind of added this to Dan's activity inventory idea, you put an hourly wage down for what each of those tasks is, right? If I was hiring somebody just to clean toilets, what's the hourly wage? If I was hiring somebody just to book flights and books travel, what would the hourly rate be? So you have an hourly rate beside every single project or task. Then you try to delegate everything off your plate that you're either incompetent or competent at, or you get rid of everything below your effective hourly rate, right? So if you make a half million dollars a year, your hourly rate is actually $250 an hour. So you want to get everything off your plate where you're making $250 or less. Uh, Dan Martell, former Genius Network member in, in his book, Buy Back Your Time, says he takes the hourly rate and divides it by four. And he says, at least get everything off your plate. So if you're $250 an hour to make half a million a year, divide the $250, you're down to about $40 an hour. Delegate everything that's a $40 an hour task or less because you're stealing from yourself. So that's what you try to do. What you should be left with is your excellent and unique ability. It's often hard to get a bunch of stuff off your plate that is either higher you know, higher impact or or bigger project areas or bigger parts of the business, that's when you can truly hire that second in command to get a lot of that stuff off their plate. I know we're we're diving a little bit into strategic coach land here, but I think it's really an important topic. And I love seeing people's different perspectives on how they arrived at this. But if somebody's listening and they're like, okay, that's an amazing exercise. I have the I and the C and the E, but I don't even know, I don't know what my unique ability is. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like if you, I know a strategic coach, we can maybe link up some of the resources for them. They got a great book called uh, Unique Ability 2.0 um, and they have a whole process on it. But what was your journey like in uncovering your unique ability, Cameron, and as as you've kind of gone throughout your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, well, well, part of that was just understanding in terms of my journey, it's also understanding that I invested a lot of money in my growth by being in part of these masterminds, right? I was in strategic coach for seven years. I was in the genius network for seven years. I've gone to baby bathwater. I've gone to like, so I've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in my own growth. I think everyone needs to do that for themselves. So the unique ability um, kind of model, and I'll rough it out for us is what's the stuff that I'm so good at that I take for granted? What's the stuff that I would love to do, except my kids have to, you know, I would do it for free, except I got to pay bills or my kids have to eat, right? What's the stuff that the more I work on, the better I get and I fills me with energy. That tends to be your unique ability. It's usually two or three things. So for me, I love doing media interviews. I love speaking, doing speaking events, and I love coaching people and networking. It's kind of those four things. So if I could spend all my time speaking, coaching, networking, doing media interviews, gosh, that would be amazing. If I can delegate everything else off my plate, right, the operations, a lot of the people stuff, the planning stuff, the execution stuff, the marketing, sales, et cetera, then my life gets really amazing. So what I then try to do is find people whose unique abilities are the things that I don't love. There's people who love accounting. I can't stand accounting. But there's people who actually went to school for it and really like it and they get off on it. Okay, give them all the accounting side of the business. They'll do it better than I am and they love doing it, Right. There's people who love sales. I don't like sales, but there's people that think sales is amazing. Let's give them all the sales side, et cetera. And it's how do you build out these unique ability teams? Well, part of that is understanding your unique ability and that of who your second in command is so you can build that true unique ability team between the two of you as well. I don't know if I just like missed this in my exploration of this topic, but a huge takeaway in reading your book for me was looking at that e-column and realizing that that's where you should be looking at for a second in command kind of role. It's like those things that are still super, super important that you're good at even, but aren't in that area where they're giving you complete energy and flow from being able to complete it. So that's, that's huge. Yeah, I, I call it ideas having sex, that I take an idea from somewhere and ideas from something else and I merge them together. So my understanding of what it takes to be a great second in command and Dan Sullivan's understanding of the unique ability idea and then kind of thinking about how do you 
create a scorecard and interviewing process, which is from top grading in the book, Who, from Brad and Jeff Smart, those ideas all merge together into, you know, a system that I like to how do you find the true second in command? Yeah, I love that. So so let's keep going with the content of the book. So now people are kind of familiar, like, okay, I can sit down, I can do this exercise, I have this list, I have an idea of some of my unique ability, I have an idea of some stuff that's overwhelming to me. One of the things that I love that you say in the book is you can easily save people $250,000 by not hiring a COO if they don't need one. So maybe share some of the things that people could do before hiring a COO or or some things that you would consider them to think about before making that that jump to getting a full second in command. Yeah, and you'll probably notice that I kind of give credit a lot for for other I've never really had any unique idea in my uh, in my life. A lot of my ideas are things that I've pulled from others, I've percolated together and I've and have spawned into something else, but years ago I heard a friend of mine Jack Daly say if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. And a lot of the stuff that is weighing down on entrepreneurs, a lot of the stuff that is taking up the time of CEOs and entrepreneurs is all the admin work, right? All of the $15, $20 an hour tasks. If we can get all that stuff off our plate first, we free up a lot of our time to grow people, work on higher impact areas of the business. We probably can wait a full year before we need to hire the actual second in command. So before you hire a second in command, make sure you have an executive assistant first. Let's talk, let's say, okay, so let's say someone does have an executive assistant. I know like another recommendation, a few recommendations you have is like fractional work and, and some other ways. So maybe share a little bit about some of the creative ways. Cause I had, this is something that's, I, that's, I've been thinking about a lot. I had Kevin Harrington from Shark Tank on the show. And one of the things that he said was like, I'd rather have 10% of the time of a CFO that could take me to a hundred million than a hundred percent of the time of a CFO that could only take me to 3 million or whatever it is. So like leveraging really high level skills in creative ways and combining that effectively. And so I think this is just a really wise way of thinking about it. And so maybe share a little bit, some other ways you could do that. So I'm going to take that idea and I'm going to merge it with another idea and it'll really make sense to a lot of people. Often we don't want to delegate stuff to people because we can do it better. Often we don't want to delegate to people because we don't have somebody that we can train to do it. Or often we don't want to delegate to people because we don't have somebody full-time to do it. Well, you can delegate to somebody who works for you one hour a week. You could actually slow down and spend an hour training them so they could do that task 50 times over the next year. So sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. A friend of mine, Dan Martell, said that 80% better by someone else is 100% awesome. I'm like, oh, that's true. Like, It doesn't need to be perfect. Momentum creates momentum. What's key is to get a lot of that stuff off our plate so that we can work in the bigger impact areas, so that we can work on the stuff that is our unique ability. Because when we spend 100% or more of our time on that stuff, that's really where the flywheel is going to kick into gear for us. Now, 20 years ago, kind of prior to having Wi-Fi, people had to go to an office to plug in to do work. Prior to having connections to the internet, 1995, 96, really 98 is when we had even anywhere speed that was good enough. You kind of had to drive to a shitty office and work with a bunch of people you didn't like. And so you needed to pretty much hire full-time people because you couldn't hire somebody one day here, one day there, one day here, because they, they couldn't get their work done. So the whole idea of freelancers and fractional people is something that's really only in probably the last 15 or 20 years. You know, Tim Ferriss popularized it in his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, when he talked about using Odesk and Upwork. Well, those ideas have now become so ubiquitous that the idea now for me to hire someone full-time, to show up full-time, to try to fill up their plate with a whole bunch of stuff that needs to get done, really kind of frustrates me. The only time you need a full-time person is when you have enough things for them to do that all are similar enough into one role that it makes sense for one person to be doing. Otherwise, it might make sense to have a bunch of freelancers to do stuff. And then you don't get reply all and CC'd and they don't have to come to meetings. You don't feel bad. And they're just doing their job for what you're paying and they get it done. So it's a new opportunity. Yeah, I think it's huge. The The image that popped into my head as you were talking, it's like, you go to an assembly line, there's not one person building the whole car. Like everybody's kind of got their role that they're really good at. And they've done a, they, they know how to do that really efficiently. And so you could train people that are uh, really specialized in certain areas and get a more holistic, more efficient thing if you're using that ecosystem really effectively. So I think that's a huge world that can be open for people. So I appreciate, appreciate you sharing that. Completely right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so we've kind of been on this journey a little bit about like, you know, uncovering your unique ability and maybe some of the creative ways that you could get stuff off your plate, but let's say the other route, like let's say someone decides, okay, it is time for me to actually bring in uh, a second in command. You have a bunch of incredibly powerful concepts on how to work together more effectively as the yin, yin and yang pair that you've been talking about. So I would love to maybe go through some of these concepts you share in the book, but one of them is uh, two, in, two in a box at the bottom, not at the top. We'd love for you to share a little bit about that and what that is. Yeah, so I've always visualized the org chart upside down, that our job isn't to be at the top of the company telling people what to do and pushing stuff down to them. If you flip the org chart upside down, so like it's an inverted pyramid, and the CEO is at the bottom supporting the VPs who are supporting the managers, who are supporting the employees, who are supporting the customers. And then everybody up above the bottom of the inverted pyramid sees the vivid vision. So they all see where we're going. And you build the company inside your core values and your core purpose. So the two in a box at the bottom is the CEO and the COO as the joint vision and execution. And then removing obstacles and growing people and building people and growing skills, right? That's really the role of leaders is to grow people and to inspire people. Yeah, I have. I, I noticed you had done a, one or two interviews with Dr. Mark Goulston, who's also been on the show. He's a FBI, former FBI hostage negotiator, uh, really, really good guy. And you, I think in your conversation, you were talking a lot about how having this dynamic with the COO is literally like being married. There's so many different ways that it's literally like a marriage. So I think uh, it's it's a really cool topic for people to understand this a little bit. So let's let's kind of expand on that two in the box at the bottom, not at the top. Uh, you're kind of developing this yin-yang relationship with someone. And there's some kind of intricate ways that you can build that relationship in a unique way where it creates exponential impact. So one of the things you talk about is date night. <laughs> we'll love you to share what, what date night is and maybe some of the ways that you've used that throughout your career. Sure. There's so many analogies that make sense to me from like the traditional marriage, let's say husband and wife or two partners that are together in terms of you need to keep a connection. You need to have fun together. You need to get out of the house and do stuff together. You need to be able to fight and argue and debate, but not in front of the kids. Right. So how do you put all those same systems in place for the CEO and the COO? So for date night, it's just how do you spend time getting out of the office together and having some hobbies together, whether it's going for a run, playing squash, going skiing, playing golf, you know, going biking, whatever. How do you get out and grab meals together once in a while and, and not necessarily just talk about work? How do you talk about some of the other things that are happening in our lives as well? Because sometimes work is just what we do to make money, right? How do you actually spend time with each other to say, hey, you were being a bit of a a dick yesterday in the meeting, or hey, you were being a you know a little bit harsh on so and so yesterday, but doing it in a safe place where there's no other employees around, so they realize you're doing it to help grow the company. You're not doing it to try to cut the legs out of another person, right? So you're giving really good feedback. And how do you shine the spotlight on the others in front of the kids, right? So that I remember, I my mom would I'd get in trouble, and my mom would be like, "Go to your room, wait till your dad gets home." I'm like, "Oh shit, I'm in trouble." I'd sit in my room for two hours waiting for my dad. My dad would come home. I'd get a spanking or talking to. And then like an hour later, I'd still be in my room pissed off and upset and feeling hurt. And my mom would come in and said, you know what? Your dad had to be the tough guy. Your dad had to come in and do that. I need him to like, so she was always making him look good. And he was always there to support her. That's the same kinds of those same kinds of relationships are critical. The COO has to shine the spotlight on the CEO to make them iconic. And the CEO needs to be behind the scenes shining the spotlight on the COO so that everybody understands why they have to be the tough person, why they have to roll out all the hard decisions, right? Why they're not the ones who's just like the, the chief energizing officer all the time. Yeah. I think there's, you know, like you, I think you had talked about this in the book too. It's like, you can't fight in front of your kids either, right? Like you need a healthy way of like making sure that those conversations are had in a spot that um, is in integrity, like you just said, but also is not creating a toxic culture inside of the organization. If people are kind of witnessing that kind of stuff. Exactly right. Yeah. And it's hard at times to do that, right? But it's remembering that you're on the same page. You're having the debate for the good of the company, right? Those are all the things that need to keep happening. Yeah, this this may be kind of going a little bit backwards in the conversation, but I think it's really important. Like, obviously, if you're going to build this level of trust and have a marriage like relationship with these kinds of people, we kind of skipped some of this content that you talk about in the book. But it's obviously really important that you have somebody that you trust at a absolutely ridiculous level, like you can go into my house and, <laughs> you know, take care of my kids or whatever it is. So what are some of the best approaches that you found for 
not only finding somebody that's a, a, a skill fit, but also a, a cultural fit where you can kind of build that level of trust if we're kind of reverse engineering from there. Yeah. So there's the culture fit, there's the core values fit, and there's the skill fit. You have to interview for all three of those. And the the culture fit is key, right? How do, do we get along? Are they going to get along with everybody else? Are they going to mesh well with the family, right? The core value side is one that you can interview for. It's, it's with solid reference check, using Torque, doing proper interviews, following all the systems from top grading or from Jeff Smart's book, Who, and really getting in there and doing proper interview so that before the person starts, you know everything about them, right? If you're waiting and saying, oh, well, it'll take about 90 days till I know enough about them to know if I've made the right decision, that's because you suck at interviewing. You would never get married to somebody and say, well, we'll see how the first three months goes. Like you're going to date, you're going to be engaged for a while, you're going to live together for a while, you're going to travel together, and you'll know enough about them to say, yeah, this is worth doing. But you, you would never get married and say, let's see how it works. So most companies are just sloppy on it. It's not actually hard to hire good people. It's What you need to do is train your people. I, I have a course that I launched called Invest in Your Leaders. And one of the 12 modules of my course is the interviewing models to actually know how to do proper interviews, proper group interviews, proper reference check, how to leverage torque. And if you bring that in and hiring not just a COO, but anybody in your company, you have a much higher predictability for success. Yeah. You just alluded to something there that I think is really important that I want to zoom in on a little bit. You had kind of talking about hiring for core value and skill. I know one of the myths that you address in the book is the fact that some people say that you should hire for attitude and train for skill, but you kind of argue that that's not how you approach things. So can you maybe share a little bit about your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, the whole adage of hire for attitude, train for skill is a very 1970s, 1980s approach to 7% growth. But if you want really fast growth, you have to hire for the attitude and proven skill set both, right? So you want the right culture fit, the right core values fit, and you need someone who's done what you need them to do as much as possible. You know, if you're looking to build out a great swim team, would you want somebody on your swim team who knows how to win an Olympic gold or who has won an Olympic gold? Would you want somebody who, who knows how to do all four strokes or someone who's competed in all four strokes? So, of course, you would go after someone who knows how to do it. So the whole idea of I want a good culture fit, I want a team player, I want somebody who's positive, I want somebody who knows how to swim, fuck, great. But you're not going to win any medals. Yeah. Hundred percent. I love that. I think it's super, super. These are these are all the intricate things that are inside of the book. So obviously, we're just scratching the surface. If you want a deep dive, make sure you go check out the second in command. Unleash the power of your COO. Is Amazon the best place you want to send people, Cameron, or other place they can go to find out? Obviously, there's got some more we could dive into. But where can people go if they're if they're if they're chomping at the bit right now and want to grab a copy? <laughs> For sure, the easiest is Amazon, Audible, and iTunes are the easiest way to devour the content. I've also written six books, but. The, the the second in command is for sure the one to grab. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, I know we, we just have like a few more minutes left. So I got like one or two-ish questions left and we can wrap things up. And I know you got some some fun adventures to head off to. But uh, one thing that I thought, another thing that I, I highlighted that I really, really loved, I think is another concept that you developed out and implemented for someone else is this concept of an operating manual. But it's from the context of like a human. <laughs> We'd love for you to share what, what that is. <laughs> yeah, it was one of my guests on the second in command podcast. His name is Matt Rawlings from a company called Rippling. And and Matt's idea was to write an operating manual of himself so that every new employee coming into the company, all of his direct reports would know how Matt, the COO, ticked. They'd know what would piss him off and what would get him happy and what would get him frustrated at work and what would drive him crazy. They would know how to approach him and how to put a report on his desk and how to communicate in a meeting, etc. So he wrote it all down. He wrote a, a two or two and a half page description of what he called the operating manual for himself. And it's actually, um, there's a link in the book and uh, it's written as an appendix in the book that you can actually get a link to it online as well and download it and read it. But it's a really interesting tool for sure. Yeah, I think that's just so important to be communicating at a really basic level. I've been trying to concoct up some automation that'll like remind me or at least send people like if you can, because I was just thinking if you can meet everyone and kind of share your core values, how you like to interact with the world, how you like to receive introductions and all the stuff that you value, like those are all things that I mean, we're all different human beings. So if there was an operating manual that that everybody kind of had an understanding of, I think it just leads to much more effective communication and much better results if you're just transparent about that from the very beginning. It would be a great leadership exercise or a great retreat exercise for each person in a business area to do that as well. Like imagine if you forced yourself to get introspective and maybe you give everybody 20 areas to dive into and explain about yourself. It becomes a really good introspective to, to know yourself. 
and then to share with others and then also to learn about each other's because it's it's about learning how to interact with each other, not change the other person. Yeah. I love that, man. This has just been so, so good. So I, I guess we kind of started out talking a little bit about your earlier experiences, some of the crazy adventure you've been on, and then you got kind of got the sandwich, the Oreo cookie goodness in the middle of the COO stuff. Let's maybe wrap out with just one more question about uh, Cameron as a human, and then we'll kind of close things out. But I would love for you to talk about skiing. <laughs> I, I heard that I heard that you were, uh, uh, skiing was played a very, very important role in your life. Maybe share a little bit about some of the impact that skiing has made on your life and in your career. God, it's it's one of, I mean, we hear about flow states. It's for sure a time when I feel at flow. When I'm skiing and I just hit one of these nice runs and I'm just being able to carve turns and and see the beauty around and, and maybe I'm there with my wife or kids or friends. I just absolutely feel at flow. It's a it's a cool, we just came back from a trip in France. We were there skiing over um, just after Christmas and New Year's this year. And, and it was amazing to be in this area of the Trois Valets and seeing all these massive mountains and just even though this, the snow conditions at parts really sucked, it was kind of cool just to be there and, and doing it. And the reality is at the end of the day, none of this actually matters, right? This is just what we're doing to make money. We may as well enjoy the journey and the, the time that we're here as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, this may be kind of going back a little bit on this, but correct me if I'm wrong, that you kind of had that realization when you and Brian basically were having a chat and you realized that you didn't have any other conversations outside of work. And you kind of just discovered that that you needed to make sure that you were having conversations about life as well. So like, if, if somebody's listening right now, and they're like, Oh, my God, maybe I don't have that much of a life outside of work. And as somebody that is coming from you where you kind of built the whole life of work, but now you have a whole life that is completely based on your unique ability and the flow that you're creating in, in the world. Any advice that you would give to them on, on that context of finding that balance? It's interesting. You have to remain interested to remain interesting. And what's sad about Brian and I is for the seven years that we built the company together and for the three years prior to that, that we were best friends, somehow I had no idea that he liked to ski. He knew that I liked to ski. I, I ski raced until I was 20, 21 years old. I had a place up at Whistler as a chalet. Like I was up there all the time skiing, but it never really came up in conversation because he was so obsessed about work. And I was just obsessed about work that we never talked about stuff other than that. What we did for fun was, you know, we'd go drinking and go eating and we would go for runs together. And we never slowed down enough to actually find out about the rest of the hobbies and stuff. It was all business, all business, all the time. And that's a, it's sad. I mean, it sounds kind of fun when you're building a cool, fun, sexy business that ends up doing so well. But if we were building an accounting firm or a law firm or a, no one would want to talk to us about our cool, fun accounting firm, we had lost sight of the fact that we were obsessed with work and it wasn't a healthy balance. And I also got very unhealthy again. So we talked about my crash in 2000. When I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK around 2007 and then the, the year following that, I probably got to my unhealthiest point where I ended up getting 40 pounds heavier than I am today at, you know, 220 pounds, 222 pounds. So what was that like when you left 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Like, did you have kind of like that little identity crisis that sometimes happens when you, <laughs> when you, when you invested so much about it? Like, how did you begin to pick yourself up and kind of rediscover what needed to happen moving forward from that? Yeah, massive identity crisis. So I was being mentored by the, the guy who's being groomed as the CEO at Starbucks. And he told me to grab a journal and to just spend 15 or 20 minutes a day journaling. And then he got me a book called, I think it was called The Diary of an Artist. And it was all of these exercises that you would do in journaling. And so I did lifelines and mind maps and timelines and made lists of what do I love and what am I, what do I hate and what am I good at and what do I suck at? I made lists of every project that I'd ever led in every company that I'd ever worked in and made sub-bullet points. I just started to really examine all the stuff that fed me for work. And then started to make a list and priorities of stuff that I wanted to do for fun. And then I wrote a first, my first vivid vision for my business and my life as to what I wanted my business and life integration to be like. And it wasn't what I'd had. And so that began this, you know, drive towards that, that happiness. Yeah. Well, you just alluded to vivid vision. I know this is a really important concept for you as well. So, so is... I mean, maybe I guess we can't glaze over this, but you're maybe you could answer what the vivid vision is. But also, I'm curious to explore, like, are your vivid visions more personal focused right now? Like you have less business vivid visions and you're more just focused on that side of things? Or have you found a way to kind of mix the both of them in, in your life? I have three and I'll, I'll actually share them with you. And you're welcome to share them with your um, listeners as well. So my wife and I wrote a vivid vision for what we want our marriage to be like. So how we as a couple want to spend time together and what we want our, our relationship as, as a couple to be like. 
I wrote a vivid vision for my personal life. It's the third one that I've written for me. And this is just how I want to show up as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a person. Um, and then I also have one for my company, for the COO Alliance, that just describes exactly how I want my company to look. And, and the idea of what a vivid vision is, it's like a four or five page description of what you or your relationship or your business looks like, acts like, and feels like three years from now. So this is describing in its finished state without knowing how it's going to come true. And then you start reverse engineering sentences of it and thinking about sentences of it and focusing on parts of it to just make those things come true. How have you found the difference between approaching a personal vivid vision and a business vivid vision? Because I know when you and when you and Brian talk about the vivid vision for a business, it's like you're picking apart each sentence and like there are entire projects that go behind and hiring people that go for it. But for your personal life, are you taking that same level of rigor of like kind of who not howing the whole thing? And or can you maybe share about the difference between the approaching of the personal and uh, business one? Yeah. So every sentence of a vivid vision is a future state that you try to figure out some different things that you can do to make them come true. So some of that is sharing it with everyone. So that's no different, whether it's a personal or family or your business one, you share it with the world. And then people read it and they help make parts of it come true. They make introductions for you. Some of it's rereading it yourself, you know, rereading my own, rereading mine as a couple, rereading the one as a couple with my my wife, rereading the, I just had all of my employees at one or at um the COO Alliance just reread our vivid vision this week, and they all came back to me with the sentences they're most excited about. And then we start figuring out those plans. So it's the rereading it, it's the thinking of different parts of it. And then it's remembering that not all of it comes true in the first, like, just because you write it doesn't mean it all happens today. Some of it won't happen until three years, some won't happen until two years, some won't happen until fourth quarter, third quarter, second quarter. But what are some of the foundational things that you work off of? that you keep reminding yourself of. It's those things. Yeah. And I think too, it was a big lesson and, and you're so good at multitasking. Like Cameron literally just put it in uh, the Zoom chat right now with <laughs> all the vivid visions. I think a big thing that what you just did is just so important is actively sharing it with every single person that you get an opportunity of doing. I, I think I'll have to share with you. I won't be able to access it as quick as you access, but my wife and I did write uh, a personal vivid vision for, for our relationship. That's August, 2025. So I'll have to send that to you afterwards, but I've just found it to be a beautiful uh, relationship tool just because like my wife, Leah and I have been kind of working on having more intentional, we call them relationship expansion sessions, but having like a backbone behind that of like what we're driving towards and the things that we mentioned inside of there just provides a ridiculous level of accountability and clarity as far as like assessing different things that we could be doing. And so would highly, highly recommend anyone explore your other topics, uh, other book, Vivid Vision. And then if, if you want to do that as well, super important. Well, and it's it's the old saying that it's like the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland, right? If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So yep. when you have an, a vivid vision for your business or your personal life, you start saying yes to opportunities that are aligned with where you want to go. And you start saying no to some ideas that maybe aren't necessarily aligned with where you want to go. But in the absence of a vivid vision, all things could lead to yes, right? Um, I, I had a chance to go to a friend's book launch and then realized that there weren't enough things lining up for me to go to this that made it a hell yes. So it was better just to stay put and spend time with my wife and spend time with myself and, you know, not add that extra layer of stress. And sometimes that's, you know, what a vivid vision does is it provides some clarity for opportunities because without one, you know, everything can be a yes, but, but you could be going a hundred miles an hour in the wrong direction. Yeah. I love that. I would also encourage anyone to go check out too as another resource kind of on this topic, but uh, the core value equation by Darius Mershazadeh, as far as like being able to create and orchestrate uh, core values that, that, that will help you to make more effective decisions in combination with uh, the vivid vision is super, super powerful. So I taught Darius in 2007, eight and nine. Darius was a part of a program that I taught at three years in a row. He's amazing. Great friend. Oh, love that. So so when you wrote your core values, who was the who was the real ninja master behind it? <laughs> or a combination I, well, of both. <laughs> I taught I taught the core values stuff to Darius. Really? Yeah, this was all and Darius will will Darius credits me on that kind of stuff too. So um yeah, we so I was building One Eight Hundred Got Junk, just finishing with that. And Darius was a part of the entrepreneurs organization and was at a program called the Entrepreneurial Masters Program. He then went on to join what's called Gathering of Titans, which is a post-grad program from EMP. So I was one of the early stage instructors at the Entrepreneurial Masters Program. It was a joint EO-MIT event that's held at Endicott House. So yeah, D Darius was in a session that I ran two years in a row, 
and core values were a deep part of that. I spoke about it today to a group that I was speaking on today. Marius has run great organizations, but I was definitely there teaching him how to build these world-class cultures, and then he's just gone to the next level with it. Yeah, well, I guess there's another example of the Avengers all, <laughs> all crossing. Into, maybe all the all roads lead to Cameron Harold. Maybe that's the lesson that we're learning. <laughs> no, somebody somebody asked me, he said, why does every company you touch turn to gold? And I said, I only touch gold. So, you know, Darius, Darius just happened to be in a group filled with some amazing people, and I was fortunate enough to get to work with them. But they also were running great companies, or they wouldn't have been in the room in the first place. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. Well, I, I would love to, this is such a great place to kind of start winding down. I would love to ask kind of the final question that I love asking all my guests and we can find out where people can can explore more. But the question I love asking everyone when I get the time is what does happiness mean to you today? What is What does happiness mean to Cameron Harold? It's funny. I, I heard this years ago from one of my mentors that happiness is the pursuit of all your goals or pursuit of excellence. I'm already happy. My my grandfather had said to my dad when I was two years old, with a name like Cameron Gardner Harold, he's going to be something someday. And I heard that saying so many times that it it became very stressful for me. I didn't like it. And then um, I don't know when it was about ten years ago. I realized I was already there. I didn't have to keep chasing anything to be successful. So now it's just like, am what I doing feed me? Can I? Am I enjoying what I do for work? Am I enjoying who I'm spending time with? Am I enjoying, you know? time with my partner like am i just enjoying stuff and if not what can i do to enjoy that stuff more i think that's what makes me happy i'm not trying to get to something to get happy that is beautiful i don't want to add anything to that besides we already talked about if anybody was interested in exploring more of the ceo stuff everybody can coo stuff anybody can check out the second in command unleash the power of your coo go check that up that'll be linked up in the show notes and on amazon if they want to find out maybe a little bit more about the coo alliance and the other stuff where can people find out the stuff that you're up to cameron yeah, definitely check out the podcast, the Second in Command podcast as well. I've interviewed 250 COOs, so I never interviewed the CEO. I've only interviewed their Second in Command. So you had Brian, the CEO of 100 Got Junk. I had Eric Church, his COO, as a guest. Um, and then take a look at the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the Second in Command. And then all six of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Love that. Like I said, that will all be linked up in the show notes. And I'm just going to really quick have a conversation with you listening. And I just want to say you could be anywhere else right now, but you chose to click on this episode and you've been hanging out with Cameron and myself. And for that, I am so grateful. I say it at the end of every single episode, but seriously, for you you investing your time to make yourself a better person and a better entrepreneur, I just appreciate you so much for being here. And my one request is that if you've heard something that has made an impact on you, whether it was the story in the very beginning of Cameron selling coat hangers <laughs> in his little entrepreneurial early ventures to running 1-800-GOT-JUNG to maybe some of the insights of uh, having date nights with your COO or some of the ways that you can create an environment where you are developing a healthy relationship with your yin to your yang. Those are all things that can absolutely make an impact on someone's life. So it would make my day, it would make Cameron's day if you decided to share that. Uh, but whether or not you do that, I appreciate you so much for hanging out. And Cameron, this has been so much fun. Any Any final things you want to say before we head off today? No, I think the only message I would always leave people with is that to remember that none of this actually matters. This is just what we do to make money. So let's enjoy the journey and have some fun along the way. Love it. Thank you so much, Cameron. I appreciate you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.